21 days of prayer. So if you're a guest of ours, I want to say welcome as well. How about my wife? Full of jokes today. Let me tell you. Crypto was brought up at Redeemer City Church. That's what I'm talking about. Let's go. That might be the most futuristic sentence that's ever been uttered at Redeemer City Church since the since we started live stream, right? But uh, I am glad that you're here, and uh, I'm glad if you are worshiping online today. I know there's a lot going on in the world, and so many of you are are uh, selecting that option, and uh, we really are glad that you're here. But as we are in the middle of this 21 days of prayer, uh, I feel like uh, it's important for us to recognize uh, when prayer is working. It's always working, right? But I love at the end of the scripture in Revelation where, where it's talking about this, this cosmic battle taking place, right? And the confession of scripture is that it was by the blood of the lamb, right? Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood. But then this statement happens. And by the word of our testimony, that Satan is defeated, that, that, that is, those are actually the things it is. It is the blood of the lamb and your experience with the Lord with Jesus, abiding in him and he in you, then it is when you will bear much fruit. And so it's by the word of that testimony, it's by your bearing of fruit that uh, Satan is actually put down, is defeated. And so by the power of that. And so we're going to continue what Jerome started last week uh, talking about prayer and contemplative prayer and, and spending time in prayer but I, I want to just bring a testimony to you because God has already performed miracles in this 21 days of prayer. And, and I hope you believe that. And uh, I want to share one with you. It was on Wednesday night, late Wednesday night. So we have our staff meeting on Wednesday nights because half of our team is um, part time. And so we, we have our staff meetings on Wednesday night at like 6 p.m. And so we did our we did our staff meeting and then the worship team practices to get ready for today. And I got a phone call from my dad and he was really upset and said that they had just taken my mom to the hospital in an ambulance. And if you don't know our story, uh, part of my story is that when I was three years old, my mom uh, had a tumor grow through her spinal cord, and she was uh, put into a wheelchair since. So she is a paraplegic from the belly button down, has absolutely no feeling or movement. And so that's just how I grew up. So that's just like, there's always just been little things. Um, and so she was rushed to the hospital and had a lot wrong, um, four or five different major uh, things, infections and and. By, like just a lot of things, and I don't want to go through all those details with you here. But uh, so that was Wednesday night, and then Thursday was just a lot of like testing and questions, and not not good. And then Friday um, got a lot of those test results back, and so a nurse walked my sister and I through. Um, just how sick my mom was. And one of the last things that he said was, your mom is very sick. 
And at that point, if, if she was going to get better, it would be at least seven more days in the hospital and then home care, nurse home care after that for an indefinite period of time. Like she was very sick was, was, the, was the last thing they said. And just reality check, like you need to know that your mom is extremely sick. So that was Friday. Uh, yesterday, Saturday morning, we had an elder meeting here uh, just to talk about the new year and to go through you know, a lot of the wonderful things that are happening with Redeemer, a potential new building, uh, all, all those things, right? And so at the end of that, we just spent time praying and, and praying for my mom. And Jerome, you confirm, I mean, at the moment that I said amen, right? Okay, so Jerome is confirming right back there. Uh, my mom actually called me herself and said that things had completely turned around. And that she's going home today. So I just want you to be encouraged by that. That God is moving. He's answering prayer. And he still has the power, right? Like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the things that we read about in scripture are real. And I want you to know that because I was thinking about, and I shared this with our, with our team this morning, in Second Chronicles 7, you know, David wanted to build God a temple. David had conquered so many things, and he wanted to build God a temple, and so he starts to gather all of these things to build this amazing temple, because he just recognized that God deserves more than I do, right? And so he wanted to, he wanted to do that in physical form, uh, in architecture. He wanted to build that art. And God said, no, I don't want you to do it because you're a man of war. Like you, you were a conqueror. And he said, but your son's going to do it. And so you get to Second Chronicles 7 and Solomon has just built this temple, right? And so he basically wants God to show up in that place. Like he wants the presence of God among God's people. And so in Second Chronicles seven twelve, this won't be on the screen. This is all free, by the way. It says, the Lord appeared to Solomon. In the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So he's saying yes to Solomon's request that you would inhabit this place with your presence. He's saying yes to that. Then he says, basically, but life is still going to happen. Listen to what he says. He says, when I shut the heavens up so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, right? Not all of your trials are from the devil. But look what he says in verse 14. He says, But if my people, my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You know, there's a, there's a large aspect of God moving in your life where he's asking you to participate. Right? Like there's... All kinds of theological debate on like, can prayer change God's mind? And that, that's not what I'm saying. What, what we do know is that God has called his people to pray. And that when we pray, he chooses to act. 
And so I want you to be encouraged by that story, but also I want you to lean into that story and just recognize that if we will participate with him, he will be there, right? Because he is the same God who was present in that conversation with Solomon, right? And and I want you to believe that. I want you to know that, that the very same God who appeared to Solomon on that night thousands of years ago is the very same God who will meet you in your prayers. And to be encouraged by that because it is who he is. It's powerful. And and as you're thinking about that, I want to throw a a quote up on the screen from an early church father named Ignatius. He wrote this around 100 AD, right? So very, like, like I like to think about it in these terms. Like his grandfather or his great-grandfather would have been around Jesus. Like, so the, the, we're really close to Jesus at this point when this is written. And so this is in part of a longer work, but here's what he said. He said, let no one deceive himself, right? So this is on us again. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone is not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. Think about that. Don't deceive yourself. Anyone who is not within the altar, that person is deprived of the bread of God. Within the altar. Think about this. At creation, God created us humans, humanity, to be in relationship with him. I love that. You know, when Adam was created, God looked at him and said, it is not good for this man to be alone. Right. Uh, One of the one of the very first confessions made in Scripture is that it's not good that we're alone. We're to be together. So I make such a big deal about city groups, right, that you need to be in city group like you cannot function as a Christian apart from other believers. And so God created us that way. And to majorly simplify our time this morning, I won't walk you through all that. But here's the bottom line. Sin broke that relationship. Our sin broke that relation with him. And so that point forward, what you see in the Old Testament is this sacrificial system, right? It's mentioned here. God says, I will show up to this temple and it will be a place of sacrifice. Super important that you remember that because of where we're going to end up today at the end. All right. But God says, I want this to be a place of sacrifice. I will bring my presence to this place. And so once a year then, the priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go into, he would be within the altar. He would be within the presence of God. And he would, in that place, sacrifice on behalf of all the people. But fast forward to the Christmas story, to the very first Advent, right? The incarnation happened. And the incarnation is simply that God took on flesh when that baby was born in Bethlehem. And so the incarnation happened. God with us, right? Emmanuel happened. And everything changed. So God, therefore, when he lived his life, 
died on the cross and rose the first Easter, he won back that relationship for us that was lost and had been moved into a place behind covering because we couldn't be in his presence. So that place of sacrifice then becomes something else. So prayer is our access to be within the altar. Because if anyone isn't within the altar, we are actually deprived of the bread of God. So important. Prayer is our place to be with the Father. So the things Jerome talked about last week aren't just habits and practices. They are and you should do them. But we do them because it is the way we get to be with the Father. Like we sit and keep our mouth shut and we let the distractions go by so that we can be with Him. It's not just so that we're mindful people. That's popular today. Mindfulness. Great. Great. Mindful of what? Jesus. There, there, is a, there is a person at the end of that exercise. So critical. Prayers are a place to be with the Father, right? So in our culture, in our secular age, we can be guilty, though, because of how much we have it together and all of our plans. We can be guilty of reducing the kingdom to concrete activities, right? Like, okay, I'm going to do this. God's going to do that. And I'm going to get on with my life. And the invitation is... Is different. Invitation is that intimate space where we spend time with God. Think about think about how Paul the Apostle wrote it in Romans fourteen seventeen. He said, "The kingdom of God." Right? That sounds like like boom, like the kingdom of God. Listen to this: is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, a matter of concrete activity. It's not a checklist, but here's what it is: it's of righteousness. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Which one do you? Which one would you choose? Right? Which one sounds better? Right? Joy and peace and righteousness. So it's a different bread. It's not bread, right? When we take communion here at Redeemer, we say that the bread and the wine is the natural way into the supernatural. And so what are we talking about here if we're not eating and drinking? If communion's not just about the bread and the wine, what is the bread of God? If I need to be in prayer within the altar so that I can have the true bread of God, what is the bread of God? John 6:32-35, Jesus said to them, "Very truly I tell you, It is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, stay with me, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Like, I want that bread. And Jesus declared, here it is. What's the bread of God? When you're within the altar, what are are we after? Jesus said, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
will never go hungry. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread of God. So to be in prayer is to be with Jesus. To be within the altar is to have the bread of God. It is to experience life with Christ. Jesus felt quite strong about this too, by the way. When he was living on earth and walking around and doing ministry, uh, he was in the middle of driving people out of the temple, right? Like there's this story where Jesus goes into the temple and he's so flabbergasted by what he sees that he grabs a whip, all right? This is our God, let's go, right? So if you're a type A and you're like all this like philosophy about sitting and waiting and, you know, like I want to do something, right? Here's your moment, right? Jesus grabs a whip and he starts driving people out of the temple. Like that's, that's not like the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that you've seen. Like for me, it was a flannel graph in Sunday school. I know we're not there anymore. Like we're talking about crypto now. All right. It's on a screen somewhere now. But that like different Jesus. Right. He grabs this whip. But here, here's what he says. Now, remember, let's connect these dots. Right. God comes to Solomon and says, I will put my presence here and it'll be a place of sacrifice. I want my house to be a place of sacrifice. Fast forward, Jesus in the temple driving people out, and here's what he says. Matthew twenty one thirteen, he says, My house Right? Like what a what a thing. Like he rolls into the temple. Not everybody believes this is his house yet, and he's like whipping people. Like whoosh, like Indiana Jones style. He's whipping people. And he says, My house. What a statement. One of the debates in theology is, did Jesus ever say that he was God? Like, did he ever actually say, I'm God? He did, right here. When he walked into the temple and said, my house, he was declaring himself to be God. So he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. So we have theologically shifted now. My house will be a place of sacrifice. To my house will be a place of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Because they basically made it like made it like a night market, like over at Armature Works. Like that's what the church had become. And Jesus didn't like that. So, you know, and it's not to say that money's not a thing, like right? Like Cameron talked about. Like we, we believe in generosity. That that's a thing. But listen, we are a people, right? We are a people who come together as one, right? John 17. Who come together as one to worship Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, and then to look at our city with Jesus. Like that is who we are. That is what Redeemer is. So all that to say, if I can get you to have your vision up, if I can get you reacquainted with that transcendent relationship that there's something outside of this that's bigger than all of this that wants a relationship with you, everything else will follow, right? That's why we make such a big deal about vision up. Why? Because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. If we can get our vision up, so, enter prayer.
21 days of prayer. Why? Because Jesus desires that his house, what is his house now? It's not this building. It's us. It's you and me. Right? Peter tells us, he says that God is building a spiritual house of which you and I are the bricks of that house. We are the temple of God. And he says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So our vision is Jesus. Like, we love God first. And everything else follows. We want our vision up, so we come and we posture ourselves, right? These, these habits and practices, we give our first, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. We give our first part of the year to pray intentionally together through the same booklet, right? Like we are giving ourselves these things because Jesus said, I want my house, which is us, to be a house of prayer. So we, we are doing that actively, posturing ourselves, quieting our souls, tuning our, the frequency of our mind to his presence, and Jesus modeled this, right? There, there's so many ways that he did. I want to show you a graphic, but before we get there, I want you to think about another quote from an early church father. Uh, his name was Cyprian of Carthage, right? So he was in North Africa in the 200s, all right? And so this is, this is significant for us because this is coming out of the birthplace of our faith, right? Didn't start here in America, <laughs> by the way. I really want to run with that. I'm going to let it, I'm going to let it, as Jerome told me last week, I'm just going to let that float by, let that distraction go. Here's what he said, not by words alone, but also by deeds, God has taught us to pray. Jesus himself prayed frequently and demonstrated what we ought to do by the testimony of his example. But if he who was without sin prayed, how much more ought sinners to pray? And if he prayed continually, watching through the whole night with uninterrupted petitions, how much more ought we to lie, at, lie awake at night, continuing in prayer? What a powerful statement. Another pastor named John Tyson was commenting on these words from Cyprian, and he pointed out the issue for our time, and I think it's worth sharing. There's a gap for many of us who follow Jesus when it comes to prayer. We know we should pray, right? Like if I was to come person by person and then say, do you think that we should pray? Not, not a one of you would say no. <laughs> Maybe one of you if you're like here and you're like, I don't know why I'm here. Like spiritual forces drug me in here. Welcome. I know that I should pray, right? But there's a gap, and therein lies the problem. The gap lies between I should pray and where Cyprian's at, I must pray. There's a gap there in our secular moment. We're very self-sufficient until you get a call in the middle of the night that your mom's in the hospital and is dying, Right? Until you get a cancer diagnosis, until you're in an accident, until and, and I could go around to all of your stories and show and we could talk about the places where God actually, like Solomon, allows control to be taken from our fingertips, right? And in those places, we lie awake at night, continuing in prayer, 
But for many, prayer is in the should category and not the must category. And that is the gap that we're asking God to close. So Cyprian says Jesus had this different rhythm, right? That, that Jesus was modeling this for us. So what was his rhythm? He obviously got a lot done, whether it be whipping people in the temple and driving them out or healing people or, you know, raising the lame. Like, I mean, we could just we could go through all the things that Jesus did, right? He was actively serving his city and his country and all the things. And then he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He was doing lots of ministry. Nobody would argue that. It's a bit flippant and maybe not even totally true, but I like the thought behind the statement that Jesus went a lot of places, but he chose to walk to get there, right? Rhythm and rest. I want to put a graphic up on the screen that I think is helpful for us. Like in Jesus' life, what did that rhythm look like? It was threefold. He would always engage, and then he would withdraw, and then he would refill. Think about that. He would engage in ministry, then he would withdraw, right? And then he would refill. How did he refill? He would be with his father. He would be with his father. So, I've said a lot already. Okay? I I, I get that. What does that have to do with you? Right? If we're gonna if we're gonna bring that down to earth, right? Like all of those that's I just spent a lot of time talking about the why. Right? That's the why. What about the how? What about the how? What does it have to do with your anxiety? What does that have to do with your cancer, with your sin, or any other trouble that life throws at you? Which, again, if we just go around the room, like we, we could make a list of trouble that life is throwing at us. So what, what does it have to do with that? I want to go to James chapter 5. And James, who was the brother of Jesus ask this question in James chapter 5 verse 13 is anyone among you in trouble is anyone among you in trouble all the troubles of life and i've spent the last few minutes walking you through some of that but is anyone among you in trouble and we could all say a collective yes yes here it is let them what Oh, come on. Let them what? Pray. Pray. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? One of you. I'm going to stick to the first one then. (laughs) Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. We just did that together. It's beautiful. My heart was full when I got up here. Right? Just listening to Charles and listening to you sing and just my heart was already full being up here. 
If we're happy, let us sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? We could say yes. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer, okay, prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Well, that seems like one way that prayer works, doesn't it? If you have trouble, pray. If you're sick, pray. Pray in faith. Look at this. The Lord will raise them up. And oh, by the way, if they have sinned, everybody, if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person. By the way, how do you get righteous? Right? Because that can be intimidating, right? Like, I'm not righteous. I, I'm a sinner. Didn't we just read that? I'm a sinner. What makes you righteous? Being within the altar. Being adopted into the family of God. Jesus said, no one's righteous. Not even one person. So he came. God with us. It's connected. He came and he gave up his life. He became that sacrifice that he was telling Solomon about once and for all for his people to be made right with him so that they could at any moment come within the altar for healing, for forgiveness. Do you believe, and this is what I want to ask you today, do you believe that redeemed people praying prayers of faith For you, over you, with you, is both of those things, both powerful and effective. Right? Like, you want something to do? You want to know where power and effectiveness lies within the body of Christ, within the kingdom of God, which is not eating or drinking? You want want something to do? Pray. Pray. Friends, this should change everything about your life. Like every single thing. Should, must. Where are you? Where are you today? And don't lie to yourself. I don't have time for that. Why is confessing sin so powerful? Because we're all sinners. And you need to know that the people around you are sinners so that you can heal. It's important. Why is faith so powerful? Because actual people are healed when they're prayed for in faith. Why is singing so powerful? Because people filled with anxiety and depression can walk into the body of Christ who is gathering corporately and be made what? Happy. Wow. I'm not suggesting that you quit your job and become a monk or a nun, though that would be cool and mad respect if you do. I'm not suggesting any of that. I'm not suggesting that you stop doing any of your life. Unless it's sin, then you should stop. But 
What I am suggesting is that every day you make time to enter within the altar to sing and to pray and to confess and to center and to petition and to exercise your faith. I want to give you a visual illustration as I finish up. It's a painting that was done by Rembrandt. And uh, it's Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he, he painted this in 1633. I should have it on the screen here. There it is. So you can, you can see Christ in the storm, right? You know the Bible story. Uh, side note, it's ironic. This painting was stolen. <laughs> I find it ironic that you would steal a painting of Christ in the storms of life. <laughs> like, it's ironic. It's like asking for a storm in your life, right? Like, come on, man. Like, talk about stupid thieves. Anyways. But here's what I think is interesting about this painting. I've just ruined the moment. I'm sorry. Here's, here's what I think is interesting about this painting. Uh, people believe that in every painting that Rembrandt did, he painted himself into it. And so you'll see right in the middle of the painting in a blue shirt, uh, a, a guy looking straight at you. Everybody else is reacting to the storm, right? Some are depressed. Some are looking at Jesus. Some are trying to fix things. Like all of life is represented here, right? Like how do you respond to the trials of life? Like Rembrandt's looking at his audience here and he's asking us, how, how do you respond to the storms of life? Right? And as you look at this painting and you spend time with this painting, you see you might be the person up on the mast there trying to fix the sail. Like, I can do this. We can get this done. Like, let's right this ship. We're going to weather this storm. Let's go. Like, some of you are that person. You're like Tom Brady. Let's go. Except he says more than let's go. But I'll leave that to you. And, you know, other people, they just go straight to Jesus. Right? I admire those people. In the storms of life, where, where are you? How do you respond? And I just want to, with Rembrandt, finish today asking you that question. When you are in the storms of life, will you pray? Why commit to 21 days of prayer? Why commit to be in a city group? Why, why commit to all these habits and practices when we're already short for time? Why commit to these things? Because Jesus desires his, his house to be one of prayer. Because it's in prayer that he chooses to act. It's through your faith in prayer that he chooses to act. And so will you pray? Will you pray? Will you put the discipline and habit and relationship with Jesus into practice so that when the storms of life come, or when your neighbor's storms of life come, or when your kids' storms of life come, or when your best friend's storm of life comes, that you will be in the altar with the bread of God ready to share it.
to taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. But then as Jesus told us to go out into the hedges and highways and compel people to come in so that his house will be full. What are we sharing with them at this party inside of his house? The bread of God. I am the bread of life. What will nourish you in the storms of life? Jesus. So we say around here all the time, the vision is Jesus. But that's why. It's not just a cliche. It's not just a Sunday school answer. Though it is those things, and there's a reason they've become that joke. Because he is the point. He is the bread. And he secured for us that place within the altar to be with him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? We'll pray. And then we're going to sing a song together that now, as you sing, should have a little more significance, right? Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing. Because it will affect those around you. So let me pray for you. And then I also want to say that Jerome and I are here. We're available. And uh, we would love to pray with you. We would love to do exactly what that scripture talks about. And pray with you that you might be healed. So let me pray. God, thanks for your word. Thank you.